Talk Speedway. Talk Speedway. Hello and welcome to Talk Speedway's My Life in Speedway, a new series for you. Uh, on the back of our first series, which was, Graham, feels like years ago now, <laughs> that's because it is. Uh, my co-host, of course, trusty co-host Graham Munsey, uh, for these interviews. Obviously, we look back on social media through the winter, through the first series, world champions galore, massive riders, massive names, and we're here for a second series. Yeah, we're back. Don't call it a comeback, as the song went, Scott. Uh, we're back with another one, and and yeah, you know, I think we, I think we'll both agree, didn't we? It kind of wetted the whistle a wee bit when we we looked back on, on what we'd done previously, and and I think we've got another another good list of names ahead, and uh, it'll have been revealed on social media by now. But we couldn't have picked much a bigger name to start a three-time world champion, Mister Jason Crump. Absolutely, a massive, massive name uh, to begin. Uh, my Life in Speedway Series 2 and without further ado we're going to get to that interview with Jason now Talk Speedway Talk Speedway We are delighted to welcome to My Life in Speedway on Talk Speedway three times world champion Jason Crump Jason, a massive welcome to the podcast for you um, thank you very much for doing this Uh We'll just go, we'll start at the end at the, at the moment. Uh, what are you up to in Speedway these days, Jason? Uh, do a do a bit with Robert Lambert. Um, I'm a track racing commissioner for the FIM now. Um, so I still have a bit of involvement, um, which is which is nice. And, um, you know, as we'll cover in the next hour or five um <laughs> speedways speedway's been a huge part of my life and and will remain to be a huge part of my life absolutely <laughs> and we you mentioned that there about you kind of been born in a speedway obviously your grandfather and your father are, are were riders of great repute them, them, themselves and um, see growing up jason did you feel a pressure when you first started to kind of race speedway or did, was it just kind of normal like maybe other riders looking at you thinking this this guy's family is the crump family and the street family and um, did you feel that pressure as you as you were coming through as a youngster um shit i can't remember that far back to be honest <laughs> um look uh, you know with with anything um with anything that you want to do comes comes a bit of pressure and um you know as as you mentioned i was fortunate to grow up grow up in a family that was it was speedway you know my my obviously I, I was born when my dad was racing for Newport I was born in Bristol because my you know I've got two sisters and I was born in August so I was born in the UK my sister Justine was born in October so she was born in the UK my younger sister Gabrielle she was born in January so she was born in Australia so <laughs> you know we we were born into it and um it was something that as a kid I I grew up my heroes weren't football players you know or tennis players my my heroes were Bruce Penhall and Michael Lee and you know the Kenny Carter and bloody you know Peter Collins it was it was that that was my life that was what I wanted to do so as soon as I was old enough to start racing junior speedway in Australia I I started to do that um I'd practiced, I'd practiced quite a bit. Phil had finished racing in the UK, 1986. And 
I kind of just started racing junior speedway because it's, you know, he was, he was not racing in the UK, but he was still racing in Aussie. So, you know, I went to the junior speedway at 4.30 in the afternoon and he raced it at night. And, and do you think that gave you a kind of a leg up and that you'd seen what your league speedway and European speedway was like from a young age, but then you still got that, what I'll call it an Australian upbringing, as it were, in regards to speedway, you know, apologies. Yeah, prob- probably. You know, the Gullmans, the Mulduras, that kind of thing, and, and doing that scene. Well, the first thing to remember is that there's genuinely not that much to do in Mildura. There, there most definitely wasn't at that time anyway. You know, the, the city, it's expanded from a town now into a into a city, basically, and and it's a, there's a lot more stuff to do. But at, at that time, you kind of rode your motorbike or you water ski, depending on what time of the year it was. And, um, you know, the speedway season was in the was in the summer. And that's that's what we loads of us did it. You know, like you, you look at the. The junior speedway at that time, you know, Lee Adams was was just finishing junior speedway when I went into junior speedway. But, you know, um, Jason Lyons, Lee, Mark Lemon, Ryan Sullivan, myself, um, and just before us was that whole group of South Australians, Shane Parker, Craig Hodson, Scott Norman. Um, you know, it, it was Shane Bowes. Um, it was it was a cool thing and there was loads of people doing junior speedway at the time and 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 a few of us were fortunate to go on and make a career out of it and jason you mentioned uh about obviously where your sisters were born etc and where you were born due to the kind of speedway kind of seasons was that kind of normal life for you jason where like when you then when you then became a rider yourself that basically life was split between the UK and, and Australia and it was never really going to be anything else and that, that life was kind of normal to you already when maybe other riders like kind of Lee Adams that you mentioned that wouldn't have been his his upbringing realistically yeah well the the change for us in our lives was when Phil stopped riding here and we stopped traveling and we were in <laughs> we were in the same place for you know for you know a couple of years um and and to be honest, for me, that's all that really was was kind of five, you know, four or five years, and and then I started doing it myself. So, um, it's it's very different, and I appreciate greatly that I had it easy compared to lots of the Australian guys that come over here. I live with my grandparents and my uncle in Devon. Um, I have my my two uncles were were always around. Um, my my uncle Graham and his wife Eddie with their kids were, you know, I had a normal, I had a normal family there because they they were, you know, their kids were like my brothers and sisters and and my uncle Andy who we all called Drew, um, you know, he basically he went to my first meeting that I rode in in the UK and he was at the last Grand Prix and, um, you know, he was at the majority of my meetings for the first seven or eight years of my career, wherever they were. 1991, you, you dipped your toes in the water at Poole. Um, and then 1992, your full debut at Peterborough. You know, what a debut season, a two-point average. I think you started on, finished on about eight and a half. But, you know, just how much did you take? It was a team that was fully experienced Aussies. You, you mentioned before, but you had Mick Poole, you had Rod Calhoun. You know, were these the kind of guys that, that just set you on the straight and narrow that year as well? 
Yeah, Stephen Davies. Um, you know, the the whole setup there was it was ideal for me and and quite honestly I my parents probably would have uh they pro I probably would have had it a more difficult time convincing them to let me go to England in nineteen ninety two to ride if it wouldn't have been in a team first off that was promoted by Peter Oakes and James Easter. And secondly that there was Mick Poole and Stephen um who my dad knew reasonably well at the time because obviously their their careers career paths crossed. So I feel I feel extremely fortunate um to have got an educate my first year of speedway education with those guys who are still very, very good friends of mine to this day, um around me, advising me and and giving me um the right thing telling me the right things to do and what not to be doing because they you know as supportive as what they were if i was a if i was a clown on track and gave somebody an unnecessarily hard time they would also tell me that so i i'm thankful for them and they know that because as i said we i still talk with both of them and 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 i'm very good friends with them both Jason, uh, just to take it back, those early days, 1995 was a kind of massive year for you. Uh, you won your first Australian title following in your dad's uh, footsteps. You were also, I think that was the year that you won the, the World Under 21 as well. Was that right? Yeah. And yeah. And you were the, the you were also the wild card uh, at the 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 British Grand Prix as well. It was just a massive year for you. But just to take it back to that Australian title. To follow in the footsteps of your dad, I mean, how much did that mean to you at that time? To be honest, at the time, it probably didn't mean a whole lot because, you know, we were we were racing. We were in the middle of the five hundred series, um, the the big series that was run in Australia at the time, and um, it was it, it it's one of those things you you win a few things along the way, and it's not really until you stop riding and you look back and you appreciate much more about things that you did along the way um and it it maybe sounds funny to you but an Australian championship to me at that time was not um it was it, don't get me wrong I wanted to win it I went in it to win it but I was driven to become world champion and winning the Australian championship was still a long way from becoming world champion so i yes the, the things like that i appreciate now um at the time i possibly didn't as much as i should have because i was always looking to the next thing to win yeah. the under the under 21 championship that was that was a little different because i'd i'd had a bit of bad luck in the under 21 in nine i qualified for my first under 21 world championship in 93 and actually got sick um in in the Czech Republic and didn't even ride in the final. I was I was I don't know, I had the flu or COVID nineteen ninety-three or something. <laughs> and I was down, so I, I didn't even compete. And then the following year, of course, I was in the world final, the long track world final in the under twenty one. And the under twenty one was the one that I wanted to win and I made a complete mess of it and didn't. So um not that that was bad luck. That was performance by me but um i was 
the under 21 was one of those things that was getting to me a little bit that I knew I had to tick off because time was running out. Yep, and of course, the, in those days, winning the under 21 meant a place in the Grand Prix series. So you had your first year in that in 96. And, you know, all along in story, GP career, we'll touch on as we go, but obviously you were probably just a little bit late in, in the old one-off world championship. And I was just wondered what your opinion is of the, the GPs against that. Do you think the one-off world championship is something that, that you would have excelled in and ended up, you know, as many or more GPs? Because it takes away that little bit of bad luck, doesn't it, that you need over a course of a series and, and it's just the best guy on the day. I still think the best rider in the world is world champion, whether you're talking one-off world final or Grand Prix. But I did I did get to ride in a, in a one-off world final at Boyens and I, I'm pleased that I did get to do that. Um, you know, would I have won more? Would I have won less? Would I have liked the world final? Who knows? It's, you know, you, you set your mind and you set yourself up for the for the series or the events you have to compete in the, you know, you can almost look at the, at the one-off world final, the, the, the qualifying rounds along the way are almost grand prix anyway. I mean, they were bloody hard meetings. Absolutely. And uh, throughout your career, you ended up winning 23 Grand Prix, but the first of which uh, you won in 1996 at, at Hackney. Um, just what, what do you remember? I mean, like for probably for some of the, our younger listeners, they won't even realise that Hackney was a track, not to make you feel old or anything, <laughs> Jason. But um, just to, again, like at a young age like that, was was that was any of that overwhelming, or was that just again another step on the path to becoming a world champion? It was another step, really. I mean, I'd been poor in the Grand Prix. Up until that point, I, I kind of couldn't get my head around what I was doing. I, I could I could beat Hans in the Polish league sometimes. I could beat him in the Danish league sometimes. And the same with the other big guys at that time, you know, you, Hamill and Greg and uh, Tony and Thomas and Tommy Knudsen, Henker. You know, I could, I could kind of beat those guys in the league racing, but then... It took me a while to work out that when you got to the Grand Prix that you had to actually go again. When you when you thought you were trying and you were putting everything you had in, you had to find a little bit more. Um, and that took me a little while. But going back to that Hackney one, I'd 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 actually fancied I fancied my chances as much as I was going to allow myself to at that point going into a Grand Prix. And I'd had some good league meetings there. Um, it was kind of it as an Aussie living in England. It's your local, it's your home Grand Prix. Um, you know, I remember my dad. My dad had, you know, obviously I used to speak to my parents on the phone quite a bit, and my dad had decided he was coming over for that Grand Prix, and the Long Track World Final was a couple of weeks later, and his his trip was kind of planned around that. So my dad and one of my mates came over from Aussie, and. It was it was just it was good to catch up with them. Um, probably took my mind off. It probably made me um, say relax, but probably made me a little bit uh, more calm. Um, you know, and and even that night, I mean, I, I wasn't the best rider on the night at at Hackney. I won the race that you needed to win um, to win the meeting. But through the heats, I've been bloody up and down like that, like I was in all the Grand Prix and. Um, 
you know, uh, certainly to go out in the final against a guy, you know, Hans Nielsen, Billy Hamill and Greg Hancock, I think who were basically the, the top guys in the world at that point. Um, and to win was was quite an amazing thing for me. But another step along the way. Um, I didn't even manage to maintain my Grand Prix spot that year, even though I won a Grand Prix. So it shows it shows the inconsistencies I had through the year. I had six Grand Prix to score 60 odd points and I fell short. So I had a, still had a lot to learn and a long way to go. Jason, sorry, before Graham cuts in here, was that the night that um, Craig Boyce punched Thomas Gollob as well? That was a year before I won. Was that was the first Hackney when it was when it was very very wet. I made see. I made a mess of that night as well. I think I won my first three races and then got nothing and ended up on my backside. So you know it was the the pressures of the Grand Prix and the level of competition were they were with it was within me, but I couldn't quite get it out in those early days. Yep. And was there a a trigger or anything that that kind of turned a corner on that because you know we we think of people when you hear interviews with the likes of Ty or or with Darcy where their natural ability got them so far and they were loving the lifestyle. You know, you're 20 years old, you're making a good living, you're traveling Europe. Was there ever a moment that kind of clicked that where you realised I, I need to knuckle down, or or was everything always just kind of incremental and always just building up towards the summit? Well, I don't say that I lived the life of a saint, but I I probably um probably wasn't quite as erratic away from the track as some of the guys have been over the years. But um, I think you mature into it. You understand more about what you need to get out of yourself to be able to perform. Um, uh, you know, I mean, you, you look at those years and I, I probably consider that I underperformed in the Grand Prix 96, 98, 99. And then from 2000, I was a little bit more consistent. I, I still had a, you know, basically a 10-point average in the UK and, you know, doing okay in the Polish league. But the Grand Prix, it, it 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 wears you down. When you're having a hard time in the Grand Prix, it's like nothing else. It just takes everything out of you. Um, I've, I've witnessed, you know, I've watched terrific riders in the past so you know you go back five six years ago and and chris holder you know the grand prix it, it just sucked it sucked his energy out of him and and possibly tie in the last couple of years with the injury problems he's had um just takes takes a little out of you and it and it takes a lot to get over if you if you have a lot of pride in your performance it takes a lot to get over a bad grand prix and um, I seemed I seemed to struggle with that side of it a little bit, but um, once I once I got myself going, there was you know there was good years in the Grand Prix, and then you know difficult to say, but you can have a good year and finish second or third. So mm -hmm. you know, and and you, the the problem with that is if you've been world champion the year before and you finish second or third, it's very difficult at the time to look at it. And say, well, I actually had a pretty good year, mm -hmm. um, but no, no, there's no magic, Graham. There's no magic wand waves above you and you become a Grand Prix rider overnight, or the click of a finger, or a new engine, or a new psychologist, or a new van, or anything. It doesn't. It doesn't help. 
Jason, you, you mentioned about the consistency there from, from 2001. Uh, you spent nine years in the, the medal positions, just in kind of what you've been what you've been saying there. Um, so obviously you won three world titles in that time. So see the leading up to your first world title, you had you had came second three years in a row, you had silver medals. Obviously there's the there's the added pressure of to win your first world title. But did you again just on on the back of what you're saying? Could you t- could you take like kind of great pride and pleasure in the fact that you had you'd managed to become number two in the world? Because for the vast majority of riders, that that would be a, a monumental achievement. Well, it, it was an achievement. Um, obviously, the first time I finished second, I was you know it was my first world championship medal, and I was very happy with that. Um, you know, so I, I I was pleased. The next year was not a backward step. Um, Tony was fantastic again in 2002 and probably um, didn't quite do it. 2003 was a bit harder to take because that came down to an exclusion in the last round. And, you know, there'd been a few things that happened through the course of the year. But, um, you know, at the end of 2003, after finishing second three times in a row, I was I was mentally I was cooked I I had to get away from Speedway for a while I mean we had you know we had two kids at that by that time and um, I had a life away from Speedway and I engaged more heavily in that life for probably two or three months before I at the end of 2003 before I was ready to start 2004 so um, but you know, you, you get to the first Grand Prix of 2004 and I'd forgotten about what had happened a year before. Yeah. I, I was just ready to ready to put everything into it again and, and try and win. And honestly, I don't believe there was a whole lot I did different in 2004 to what I did in 2002 to come second. So, you know, it's it sometimes can depend as well what the what your competitors get up to that year. And then, of course, you know you won the first uh, world championship there. And then we see it so often. You know, just how hard is it again? You finish in the medal position, but to get yourself back up and, and maintain that level of peakness. You know, I think of very few riders in recent history that have won world championships back to back, particularly after the first one. You know, Ty didn't manage it. Bartos didn't manage it. Does, is it hard just you know, once you've reached that the top of the mountain, just to push on again and, and not just you know even subconsciously level off just a little bit? But you, you have a look. There's a, there's a lot of, there's an added pressure that comes with being world champion, and that is that every meeting you turn up to on the parade, you're introduced as world champion, and that gives every rider in that meeting who's racing against you a little extra kick in the backside to want to beat you that night. So, without even realizing it yourself every rider that you race against that year raises their game by about 10% every time they raise you. So ultimately it brings you to a higher level, but at the time it's very difficult to, to understand. Um, so as I said, just before, I don't think I rode worse in 2005 than I did in 2004. Tony just rode a little better than me or, or a lot better than me um, and got more points than me. So, it it's um 
it's very tough to it's very tough to maintain the level that that the ultimate highest level year on year but it, it can be done because if your competitors have a year where they're not quite able to raise their game as well then it can happen and Jason we've seen you when you won that first world title um, I, it was in Norway, I, I think. Uh, we've seen it. We, was it a bit anticlimactic? Because obviously we've seen uh, Rooney Holter excluded at the, at the tapes, then Ryan Sullivan uh, coming off in the, the first bend, which then handed you your, your first world title. Um, it, was a, it, was a funny, it was a funny set of circumstances because it, the year before, it was Holter that I went up the inside of that bailed out and, and effectively got me an exclusion. Um and I'm, I was, I can, I, I didn't really remember it well. And it, it comes up on your timeline every now and then on social media. And I saw it the other day. And of course, that clip when I fall off has been on <laughs> question of sport and all sorts of things. So, um, you know, but you sit, I, I see we were all sitting there at the starting line. We're all ready to go with the two minute clock, basically nothing left. And Halter decides he's going to move. Well, that's exclusion. You know, that's just basic basic bloody knowledge of your job you know you got to be ready to go when it's at zero and and then of course at, at that stage in racing if you started on the outside of Nicky and you weren't a hundred percent in front of him the chances that you were going to get a bit of a nudge were, were quite high so um yeah Ryan ended up on his back we'd all been down I think before yeah. that yeah I think it was it's a strange race. It was like three or four restarts, and you know, obviously, I'm trying to win my first world championship. <laughs> so, yeah, bizarre how it worked. But in the end, the pressure was taken off me, wasn't it? The referee yeah. made my job easy. How how was the relief that when that happened? Obviously, after finishing second three years in a row, first world title, did it just feel like a a, a weight had been lifted off your your shoulders? Because we've seen. And the, the 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 final stage in the meeting, you can't uh, the race. We, you kind of look over your shoulder and let kind of Nicky past, and it was kind of I'm just celebrating was, now. It was, I it was just cooked. I was cooked. Yeah, I, yeah. I had nothing left. Emotion, emotionally, I was done. Um, um, you know, you 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 feel terrific joy and all of the emotion that comes with winning. Um. But Mel and I still had to go back to the hotel and put the kids to bed, and we yeah. still got we still got up at five o'clock the next morning and came home because the kids had school Monday. So um, I think that I was very very fortunate to have a very fortunate to have Mel with me. Um, we got married a couple of months after that, and the kids were always a part of um, a, a huge part of my racing. You know, coming going to the event, going to the Grand Prix, and it kind of always kept me a little bit level. Um, so I was I was very happy that all of the people that helped me in my career at, up, up to that point, my uncles were there, my aunt was there, my cousins were there. Um, it, it, was, it was great for that to happen that night. We had a couple of beers and then, yeah, you know. Then of course, within a week or two, you start thinking about winning the next one. Yeah, yeah, and then of course the, the next one came in in two thousand and six, just two years later. 
I think I might know the answer to this already, Jason. So I apologise. It was a silly question because you kind of touched on it already. But you know, I look across your league averages that year, an oven, almost an oven and a half average in the UK. Obviously, winning the Grand Prix is that the one where you think you're at your absolute peak by that time? Or again, like you maybe touched on two thousand four, two thousand five. It was just a year where you just rode better than everyone else. Just that everything just clicked. I th I think to be honest, I think a little bit of both. I think I'd I'd got I got rid of the pressure of trying to be world champion. I'd I'd moved clubs in Poland. Um, I'd been a Jawa rider for five years, and um, actually, funnily enough, I'm I'm still the last rider to win the world championship on a Jawa which is quite amazing to think that um, I had at the time I was, I was ready to move from Jawa to GM at the end of 2004. I had GMs here that we'd been working on and I'd used a few times. And um, when I won the world championship, Jawa was so, I was so happy for them as well because of the support they'd given me. Um, we, We'd spoken about making a new engine, about changing things. Um, they ha they hadn't done that. I told them I needed a new engine because we were we kind of were about at the maximum of what we could get out of that out of the product at that time. They kind of talked me into staying with them for two thousand and five with the promise of a new engine, and um, I did that. And we finally got a new engine around August time, I think it was. And it was it was a it was a tiny bit better than what we had, and I couldn't see that that we were going to be a whole lot better off. Um, so I made the move to to GMs at the end of that season, at the end of two thousand and five. So for two thousand and six, I had a whole lot of new engines that I that I was learning i was um again i was i'd changed clubs in poland and i went to wrocław which was so good for me at that at that stage in my career mr uh mr and mrs rusko now andre and christina were really really supportive of me our coach was marek Sheslak. And he was a, a guy that I'd known for years, obviously raced against my dad. And um, he, it, was, it was the weirdest thing because obviously he was a Polish national coach. He was my coach in Wrocław and, and I used to do a lot, of, a lot of testing and training with him in, in Poland. So um, had a terrific relationship with him. He seemed to bring the best out of me racing. And yeah, I think, statistically if you look at 2006 it was it was probably the best year i had in speedway and i i rode from the first meeting to the last meeting pretty bloody good all year absolutely after that world title uh jason does it then is there any point for a kind of a kind of multiple world champion where after the first one it's then business it's the it, it then obviously your lifetime ambition's been achieved but it's then business to then get to that summit again yeah for sure but you, you have to it's something that gets forgotten a lot is that we race speedway to feed our family mm -hmm. and you know as a as a professional you have to have you know you, you have commitments 
you know, I had a wife and kids. I had three, four people working for working for the racing team. Um, so it's as much as you're driven to to be world champion and as much as you're driven to win all the races you're in, you also have to earn a living and run a business and and support the people that that are in, that you're employing. Um, so there's lots of different things along the way. And, you know, 2007 and 2008, I was, you know, I maybe wasn't going to win the world championship. I was in the hunt, but probably not quite, not quite at the level that, that Nikki and some of the others were riding at. And, um, you accept that, you know, we, we had loads of things going on in our life at the time we bought a farm and we, you know, kids are getting older and doing different things. So, um, it was, it was just a part of your career. I don't, it's, I almost look back and think there were years where I was, uh, almost like a semi pro rider. Yep. And then you touched on it there when you said about moving in 2006 to Rochlav, obviously you were in Poland for many years and, and Kenny, you were probably there early enough when it was, it was almost still the wild west. Even when you were over at that time, could you see that Polish Speedway was going to become what it is now? You know, we look at multi-million dollar TV deals, really, but Polish Speedway potential even ahead of the Grand Prix in some ways now is, is top of the Speedway tree. Well, you could see the ambition was there. Um, you know, I, I first started in Poland in 1994. Um, as a country, they hadn't been out of communism that long, real world. Um and the country was be the country, not only Speedway, but the country was redeveloping and refinding itself, if you like. Um, and you know, I was in Poland last week with with Robert, and it's you know, Poland is the mecca of Speedway now. It's the center of world Speedway, and and you know, they still get fantastic crowds there the support for Speedway is, is huge. So we could, you know, going back to those early years, you could see what the ambition was, but were they going to be able to carry it out? Well, they most definitely have, haven't they? Jason, just to, just to look on, just to kind of piggyback on what, what Graham's asked there in terms of, um, obviously, Polish Speedway being massive, <laughs> but the, the kind of generation of, of, of Grand Prix that you, you rode in, like, I would consider that, like, when you look through the the rider list, it's it's incredible to, like, the, the level of, of talent that was in there. To me, it's the greatest generation of, of like, kind of world finals or uh, kind of Grand Prix. When you look at Ricardson, yourself, Pedersen, Hamill, Hancock, I mean, I could sit here all day and kind of rhyme off the, the, that generation of, of kind of riders. Um, going on, did, did you feel that at that time that like to be, to have the mentality to obviously challenge for a world title, did that kind of play a, a, a bigger part in it at that time um, in terms of what like, you knew that everybody that was in that had the potential to win a world title essentially? Well, I, I... I disagree with that. I don't believe that everybody had the potential to to win a world championship. Um, I think that it's an age-old argument that people talk about this era being better than that era. Or, yeah. You know, now it's not so strong, whatever you want to say. Ultimately, the best 
15 riders in the world are in the Grand Prix, whether it's 2000 or 2023. The best riders in the world at that time are in the Grand Prix, no exception. Um, but how do you judge with the, the, the tracks now, the bikes now, the tyres now? Um, how do you judge Barry Briggs with Bartos Marslik? It's an impossible conversation. And it's something that I, I find frustrating and annoying that people say Speedway was better than, Speedway was better yeah. than. It, it, Speedway is what it is. Speedway is what it was in 1955. And Speedway is still what it is in 2023. The riders can only race within the rules. Um, your equipment still has to be within guidelines. Um, and the riders that ride the bikes in the world championship are still the best in that year. Yep. And then sort of stepping away from the Grand Prix, obviously three-time individual world champion, but also three-time world champion as part of your country. You know, the World Team Cup, I think, in was it 99 and then twice the World Cup. You touched on it earlier that now actually looking back, the Aussie title means more to you than it maybe did at the time. Is that the same with the World Team Cup Championships? Or at the time, was that, you know, were you as proud of that as you were your own individual achievements? Well, you, you're obviously very proud of it. And um, I actually find that part of my career a little bit frustrating because man for man at the time, Australia almost year on year had a match for Poland or Denmark or whoever we were competing against. And I think we actually underachieved as a team um, heavily in in the World Cup, Speedway Nations, Speedway World Cup, whatever it was at the time. Um, we, had a, we had a great pool of riders. Um, we just never, ever all seemed to to click on the same day and it was to be honest for me i found it very very frustrating last kind of last kind of question just on the kind of grand prix and kind of world titles there jason is that obviously yourself you've reached the the mountaintop three times um there's there's different i suppose i would i'm kind of curious to know what you think is the the kind of difference between because we see good league riders riders who have got high averages in the top leagues we see them in the grand prix and they don't quite make it to the the, the mountaintop so to speak um what do you think the difference is in the, the kind of mentality and certain riders whether it be equipment or whatever it may be to basically be as consistent as you were especially around that time when you won your world titles to be as consistent as that in the world championships as well to then ultimately get the gold medal? I think that it's very easy to say that you need to win more Grand Prix, but you need to make the Grand Prix count on the days that you don't feel your best because mm -hmm. ultimately through 10, 11, 12 rounds, there's days when regardless of which bike you ride or what gate you have, you can't quite manage to perform at the level you want. And they're frustrating. Um, and you have to be able to deal with that frustration. And instead of getting six points, you need to get nine points. You're still probably in the back of your mind, no, you're not going to win the Grand Prix. And today's not going to turn out to be a great one. But 
you have to maximize your worst days. And for me, that was, you know, when you're close in and, you know, the championship could come your way at the end of the year, you have to absolutely make sure that you take as many points on the days that you're not going to win as you possibly can. Yep. And then looking at your, your British career and, you know, I think you're particularly later on in your career, you're most affiliated with Bellevue. You know, it was the one place you spent a consistent amount of time, I think, early in the career. You know, there was two-year spells here, two-year spells there, but then it was a, was it seven out of nine years or seven out of ten years you spent at Bellevue. You know, when, when you look back on your career, is that kind of where you would class your, your happiest times in the UK? Well, every every club I rode for, I had happy times there. Um, I kind of... Um, there was different stages of my career where I felt different things with my riding needed to be addressed, if you like, worked on. And, you know, having having spent some years at Peterborough, obviously I was not worried about going fast or going close to the fence and, you know, being able to to race in the way that you raced at Peterborough. But after, a, after some years there at I kind of realized that I didn't turn the bike quite as well as I needed to when I went away to Grand Prix in Poland. So I figured Kings Lynn was Kings Lynn or Ipswich at that time were, were the places I need to go, needed to go to turn the bike better and um, improve that side of my riding. So I ended up obviously Ipswich was full because they had Tony and Thomas and Tiger and Scott Nichols. So they were, that wasn't an option. So I went to Kings Lynn for a couple of years and remembered how to turn the bike and, you know, deal with the grip. Um, and then I realized that I had to become a better starter. So I went to a dodgy track in the UK where no one else really wanted to go at the time. And I went to Bellevue and John Perrin was like a, like a, breath of fresh air we had i had a fantastic relationship with john he was one of the fairest and you know i don't say he was the best promoter in the world for promoting the sport but he was one of the best people um and i enjoyed his company you know he'd tell me if i got beaten by mark lauren that i'd just ridden a shit race and be quite happy to tell me that um you know, no disgrace being beaten by Mark anywhere. Um, but he he was really good for me, and it was a shame when he moved away. But then, you know, Ian Thomas and Tony Mole came in, and Ian was a you know he was another old school promoter that was that was a good guy to work for. Um, you know, had a huge history of had a huge knowledge of the history of Speedway. Enjoyed conversations with him, talking about talking about how how he'd done things in the past and um you know what i i liked it in i liked it at bellevue the the track you know it suited me um the airport was just there i could i could come in i could come in from into manchester from poland on a monday and i could stay in manchester the night monday night and fly out to sweden for tuesday so I couldn't really understand why there wasn't a line of riders wanting to go there because of because of where it was. Yeah, that was going to be my next question, Jason. Did a lot of it come down to logistics as well? Because I would make the assumption that 
uh, flights to Poland, flights to Sweden weren't as regularly as available back then as what they probably are now for for riders. But did when you were signing for teams, did a lot of that come down to logistics as well? It, it well, it did. It, it did at that point, yeah, because obviously I I knew that Manchester Airport was was a busy airport with lots of flights, so um, it worked out well. I mean, for the space of six or seven years, I was in the UK every Monday, but I never went home. You know, it was I, I would get into Manchester as late as possible and, you know, stay the night at the airport. Um, you end up pretty much on first name terms with the staff there, the, the overnight staff there. And um, it was it was it suited me fine. You know, it was it was a great time. I had a I had such a routine organized there with that, that it was it was kind of crazy. And um it worked out well. It served it, it served a great purpose for me at, at during that stage in my career. Yep. And then did that just become a bit too much though as time went on? I mean, I think the last couple of years of your career you kind of stepped away from British Speedway and was again, was that just because at that time there was no fixed race night? So you could be four nights a week in the UK and then getting in and out of Poland and Sweden and I guess a family that's getting a little bit older and school age and stuff. Do you did know it it came it came down to it came down to a lot of things there's a few main things that it came down to i was i was 35 36 by that time so i'd done you know i'd done a lot of riding for a lot of years with a lot of traveling my my kids were the kids were getting older um i I didn't like the fact that we could, we were all on good contracts in Poland at that point. By that point, Poland had properly kicked in. Now, there's there's parts of it. There's times of the year where Polish Speedway and English Speedway were starting to clash, like like the Easter weekend. Now, I. I couldn't, I wasn't prepared to go through any of the hassle for any longer with dealing with a bank holiday Monday, Easter Monday, going to Bellevue at 11 o'clock in the morning and then going to Wolverhampton at 7.30 at night when the Polish fixtures came out in December of the year before and clearly said that I had a Polish league meeting that day and three months later, Two months later, the British fixtures had come out and say that I had two meetings that day at Bellevue and then at Wolverhampton. And with the agreement between Motorcycling Australia and the ACU, um, at that stage, I had to forego my Polish fixture and ride in England. And it had been wearing thin on me for a little while and I didn't I didn't really think it was fair that England should take all of the bank holidays um, and not allow Poland to have any. Of course, the financial side of it was one thing, but you become embedded in the clubs in Poland as well. Um, and to be absolutely honest, I didn't really want to ride five days a week at that stage of my career. And we'll look back as, as your... your 
kind of British career, most successful period I would say was probably with with Peterborough. Uh, I think Sky had kicked in at, at that point as well. Uh, when you guys won the 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 late league, um, it was a f- phenomenal team that he's had that that season, and fortunately we all got to kind of witness that at that point. Um, what what did winning like kind of league league titles mean to Jason Crump? Again, at that time, probably not that much. I probably just wanted to score a maximum, but <laughs> um, it. <laughs> Of course, when you when you're in a team, as I said, you become embedded in the in the team and the club and the promoters and the fans, and of course you want success. But it was, you know, when you have a good team, you almost expect to win, and if you don't, you're disappointed. But when you do it, it's almost accept expected. Yeah. Um, you know the the times I had at Peterborough were were they were good times. I I most definitely wouldn't agree with you and say that the best stages of my British career were at Peterborough. Um, I, I, you know, nothing against the the Panthers and, and what's going on there now, but I think as a writer and as a, as a person, I was much more mature and became much better team player when I, by the time I got to Bellevue. Yep. And we could tell, and we've heard that, all through the interview, and it's always kind of been known that you know you you kind of think bigger than than just your own little bubble in, in regards to speedway. And just how heartbreaking is it then when you see the news in the last couple of weeks? You know, Peterborough potentially gone at the end of the season, Wolverhampton potentially gone at the end of the season. You know, things that you could argue avoidable in some ways, unavoidable in others. But you know, the state of British speedway compared to it was when when you were in your pomp in it must must leave a tinge of sadness, particularly when you're still involved. Yeah, of course, of course it does, but um, I don't, I don't actually know how to answer that question. But yeah, it it's a shame to see Speedway in that in the situation it's in right now. Um, you know, bloody the first, I remember going to Peterborough the first time, and it seemed like the track was in the middle of nowhere. You know, and you go into the showgrounds now, and there's houses built right up along the back straight, and there's a, you know. Um, I guess it's it's just uh, the world we live in. It's expanding, and we don't have any more room for it to expand. So things just get taken away, and um, it's a it's a it's a horrible situation for the sport to be in. Um, you know, and promoters take a take a lot of stick for for things that they do wrong or things that they shouldn't have done, and and all of this but you know you you look at somebody like chris at wolverhampton he's been there since what the mid 80s and probably thought that he that wolf speedway would stay in that stadium forever and a day but it's the same old story as your your mate who's never owned a house he's never been committed to a mortgage and he's rented he thinks he's going to live in that house for the rest of his life and then the guy who owns it decides he wants to sell it so you know Absolutely. Uh, Jason, I was fortunate enough to spend a weekend with your dad in Croatia uh, a few, well, a good few years back now uh, when I was out there for a, a Grand Prix qualifier with Justin Sedgman. And I think I know the answer to this question already. Um, what, how would you describe yourself maybe after a bad beating or if th- if things weren't going to plan? Uh, what was what was your kind of mid-right? Were you easy to be around at that point? 
I don't think I was ever easy to be around. I was I was okay to be around if I'd had a good meeting, but if I'd had a bad meeting, I had the shits all the time. <laughs> Wait, was was how did you how did you handle bad meetings though? Were, were you the type work badly? Badly, you weren't the type of rider that if you if you had a bad race, it was right that one's behind me. I need to look to the next one. Well, of course, but you have to get rid of that emotion. I'm a huge fan of tennis now because as you mature and you understand more about sport, you know, and I have tremendous admiration for these tennis players because they're, you know, they lose a point, could be the match point, and they have, what is it, 20 seconds and and they can be facing another one. So I could come in from a bad race at the Speedway meeting and kick my toolbox and, you know, tell myself I was a dickhead um, for five minutes and then still have another five minutes to get myself ready for the next race. These tennis, the, you know, tennis or many, many other sports, but tennis players have 20 seconds. So the emotion they have to get out in that 20 seconds, and then they have to refocus. They have to reboot, forget that move on, win the match. Um, it took me a little bit longer than that to get it. But yeah, for sure, if I had a bad race, I wasn't a happy person. It was, you know, I didn't go to the races to to have a bad race. I went I went there to to win and to perform well and and have pro- and had a huge amount of pride in my performance. Yep. And then we saw kind of towards the end of your career, sadly, the injuries started to catch up and and you eventually you retired. And then you know, a few years later. The, inju- the injury the injury that happened in 2009 for a start was probably a lot worse than, uh, than it was definitely a lot worse than I let on. And it was worse than I really realized at that time. And I think I ended up having five or six operations on, on my arm. So that was, that was, yes, probably the start of the end, but, at that point in 2009, I didn't really understand how bad and how long that was going to take and what was needed, what I needed to get done over the course of the next couple of years. But um, yeah, it's, it's racing, isn't it? If you don't, if you don't want to hurt yourself, you don't race. And ultimately, that's probably why you retire. Absolutely. And we've seen you come out. We've seen you come out of retirement uh, with Ipswich in Plymouth a few years ago. Uh, what what brought that on? What was what was the itch to to basically come back into league speedway in Britain? Well, I was kind of a little bit bored at home. Um, the kids had both finished school. Um, we kind of had an agreement. We 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 kind of knew that. I wasn't going to race until I was in my forties and um, you know, that, that wasn't something that I'd kind of planned to do. Or I'd never said I was going to ride until I was 40 or I was going to do this or do that. And um, you know, the retirement, when I stopped racing, first of all, in 2012, I, I was worn out. I was burnt out. I had a couple of, I had no, major injuries but i had a couple of things that were that were just bugging the shit out of me all the time and i needed to get fixed and what i needed to get fixed were a shoulder and a knee and you know that shoulders and knees are not 
five weeks or eight weeks. They're more like 16 weeks. Um, you know, and I, I, we looked at it and I had good, I had fantastic surgeons available to me, um, you know, saying best cases, you know, best case scenario, everything going right. You're looking at kind of five to six months. Well, shit, if, if that's the case, then. And, you know, I might as well just knock it off. And, and that's what we decided. So we moved back to Australia. The kids went to the same school every day from when we went back to Aussie until they both finished their education. Um, so we did that part of it right. Um, and ultimately, I didn't go on a bike for a while in Australia because I got, I got myself fixed up. But I'd still kept doing a few meetings most years. Um, I was doing doing a bit of coaching for Motorcycling Australia. Peter Campton at at Curry Curry was very keen to have me down there often to to you know to be coaching people. Um, your mate Justin came to um, he came up to our place on the Gold Coast with uh, I think it was Justin Dan Bewley, Tom Brennan. Kyle Bickley, possibly those three. I maybe there was another one. If there is, I apologise to who it was. Um, and over a few beers, they <laughs> Dan says. So, what would your average be if if you rode in England now? And I, and I said, I haven't got a clue. So we actually rang the we actually rang the BSPA that night. Um, from Aussie to find out what my average would be. And next thing I've got a couple of phone calls from the UK, which I declined. And then this, this goes on for a little while. Then Ian Sinderson, my long-term sponsor from ATPI, um, who'd taken all the English kids over there, rang me and he was in a bind. He had a meeting going on in Perth. Um, a few of the East coast riders that had committed to it had had, something change and had to pull out and he said Shit, i need you i need you to do me a favor i said yeah, yeah what's that and he said i need you to go to perth and write in a couple of meetings for me this weekend bloody hell okay so i went over to perth and you know saw woofy and you know raced against the boys and actually managed to beat dan a couple of times which i was quite happy with and then the phone started to ring properly Mm -hmm. um and i thought you know what i'm not really doing anything else at the moment um i was at a bit of a loose end and uh, of course i start training and start getting ready to to be a speedway rider again and then covid kicks in so i'm in england to start the season with ipswich in 2020 and i was here for about a week um and then Ian rings me and says this, you know, the, the TT had been cancelled, the, the league had been put on hold. We didn't, no one knew what was going on. So um, Ian says to me, rings me on a, on a Tuesday and I don't answer the phone because we actually had our press and practice date Ipswich that day. Um, we'd been speaking and he said, I'll probably need to get you home within the next three or four days. And I went, yeah, that sounds good. Let I've got press day Tuesday, you know, maybe a flight on Thursday would be good because I'll clean all my bike, get everything cleaned and packed up after press day and then 
get going home. So I go down to press day and Ian's ringing me all day and I finally answer and he goes, you, you've got a flight tonight. If you want to get home within the next six months, I suggest you get on it. It's at 10 o'clock tonight. I'm at Ipswich and it's, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon. Don't have my passport. Don't have anything apart from my bikes. So my mate from Milton Keynes burned, got my passport, threw some clothes in a bag for me, came down to Ipswich, picked me up, took me to Heathrow, go home, go into quarantine for two weeks, which you have to do, it had to do in Aussie at that time. Then uh, just as I'm coming out of quarantine, my son Seth, Nick Morris and Ryan Douglas, we all decide we're going motocrossing. Yeah, yeah, okay, great, great. We'll go motocrossing. We're going to meet there at nine thirty in the morning. I said to Seth, "We'll, we'll bloody, we'll get there at eight thirty. Get ready and have some practice laps. So when they get here, we're covering them in shit for a couple of laps until they get used to the track." Well, we're out riding, and I have the big crash and ended up breaking my pelvis in two places and broke my wrist in about twenty places. So Dougie and Dougie and Nick turn up at the track as I'm as Seth's dragging me back to the car because I couldn't walk. They load me in the car and then spend the next two weeks in hospital. Um, and then the, and then Chris Louie rings me and I told him I'd fallen off a motocross bike, but I didn't tell him exactly what I'd done. And Chris rings me and says, oh, good news. I think the season's going to start about the middle of, middle of July, beginning of August. And I went, oh. <laughs> Oh, that's that could be a bit of a problem, Chris. <laughs> Why is that? I said, oh, broken me wrist. I've I've had that operated on, and um, you know, pelvis is not too good. Anyway, long story short, is the the season didn't start as you know. There was a few meetings behind closed doors at Bellevue, which I rode in. Um, and we were in England because BSB was on that year, so Seth Seth actually got got the season in, um, and then. The mistake I made was I was geared up to ride in 2020. Um, it didn't happen. And then, of course, I, I carried it over to 2021 and it was possibly a mistake. I'd lost a bit of, I don't know, I'd lost the excitement or the or the want for it again. And um, it was a shame. I, I started off okay, actually. And then, of course, hurt myself at Wolverhampton and just didn't quite recover from it properly which was a shame but i i genuinely don't regret it because i felt that i i did desperately want to do it at that stage of my life and um just a little bit unfortunate that it didn't turn out the way i the way i had wanted i i knew i wasn't going to come back to england and score 14 15 points every meeting i was fully fully accepted of that um but I still thought I could score kind of nine or 10 and, and, you know, beat a few guys here and there, um, which I did manage to do occasionally, just not with the frequency that I hoped I'd been able, would have been able to do it. But um, I look back to the meeting before I hurt myself actually at Ipswich and I'd had a good, I had a good night against Sheffield and, and I thought that that was, um, I thought that was about the level I was able to ride at. But um, obviously, coming back from breaking ribs was was tough. I also hurt my jaw a bit and f 
fractured a couple of vertebrae, which were which were stable fractures, and you know they they were not they were not a, as much of a problem as what the ribs were. But um, it was it was a bugger because I was I was enjoying riding, and I was I, I say I was riding at that point. I wasn't the race. I wasn't Jason Crump, the racer that I had been in my previous career and I knew as I said I knew that wasn't going to be the case um but I thought I could still ride at a reasonable level a good enough level to to be a decent league rider I just you know Chris and Chris Louis and the Ipswich fans unfortunately didn't get to see the side of me that I wanted uh I wanted them to be able to see which was a shame because I'd always gone very very well at Ipswich they always hated me there so I, I knew I'd gone well there. Yep, and that obviously brought, well, I, I assume the curtain down on the career. There's no plans for a further comeback um, after that. But there's never, but but really, I, I only ever retired. This is actually true. I only ever retired really from the Grand Prix. I, I just kind of stopped riding. There was never a hoo-ha. I never had a farewell meeting. Um, you know, it, it wasn't that that's it because... Genuinely, if I go back to Australia this year in December, January, and I feel like I want to go and do a meeting, there's nothing to stop me. I'm not retired. I'm not, you know, breaking a, a code of having a farewell meeting and, and, you know, oh, the lights are coming back on again. It's you don't need any of that. I don't. It's great for riders who have farewell meetings. I'm, I'm pleased for them. Um, but at the end of the day, we're, we're a small, every rider is just a small part of a big sport. Um, no one more so than anybody else. And, um, you go in, you have your career, you earn your wages, and then you move on to the next thing that you do. Yeah. I was going to say it and kind of stepping away from that, Jason, obviously, a long and, and varied career, but but one, and, and you touched on it earlier when you said that maybe away from the track, you weren't, you know, looking for incidents or parties. But one thing that I always found amazing is, is for a rider your calibre and at the top level, when we've done these with other guys, you do a quick Google search and you can find four or five examples, uh, punch-ups, uh, aggro in the pits, that kind of thing. That wasn't something that was overly familiar to your career, but... You, know, you must have a few examples. Is there anything you kind of think of or, or one example from your career too that just spring to mind where you think, well, wait a minute, what was going on here? I think Nikki, I think Nikki and I probably went through a stage where we had an argument with each other at every Grand Prix. Um, you know, and it was it was because I was passionate about what I was doing and wanted to beat him, and he was passionate about what he was doing and wanted to beat me. And obviously, if you have two people that are that are competing with each other for the ultimate prize and there's going to be a bit of conflict and um you know i i at that stage i didn't really have a relationship with nikki um probably still don't really but i you know i see him around a little bit now and and we can talk and we had a we had a 25 year reunion at cardiff last year which was which was quite funny and um you know, Tony and myself and Nikki and and a few others were there, and it was it was quite a good night. We all had a few beers and talked talked a load of shit to each other about who did this to who and who did that to them, and uh, it was quite good. But um, you know what? 
yeah, I, I had a few scraps at, at the during the course of my career, but um, so what? If you race in five five hundred races a year um, for fifteen to twenty years, then of course there's, there's <laughs> going to be a few scraps along the way. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned uh, Nikki there a question I've always kind of wondered the answer to. To take you back, 2012, when Chris Holder is just a bit on the verge of winning uh, his world title and obviously it kind of blew up in a race with Nikki that you weren't in. Obviously, Jack was involved at that point as well. And we've seen you uh, taking Chris away for the kind of the melee at that time and the, and the kind of arguments. And we've seen you kind of sitting in a corner with Chris, basically having a quiet word in his ear. What did you say to him at that point? Nothing, really. Drop the clutch when the tapes go up. Simple. When you're under the most stress, you have to go back to the most basic thing. And Chris and Nikki were racing for the world championship. And I think I think Chris had the I'm sure Chris had gate one, didn't he? And like gate one was dynamite at Torrent most of the time, still is. Um you know, and he the only rider in Speedway then and probably still now that could make a consist or one of anyway, uh, who could who could outgate somebody off gate one was Nicky and and he did that. And and to be honest, in my opinion, I think Chris was probably quite fortunate to get back in the rerun. Um and I knew that he from past experience, I knew his head would have been all over the place and then Jack and Chris are pushing Nikki, and you know it all kind of kicked off. So, going back to the that tennis thing from before, Chris had, you know, Chris was going to get five minutes to reset, and I knew that he had to reset the right way, and he had to be going back out in that race clear. And it was just, you know, I just felt like, um, don't say I was responsible to go and take Chris away but I was probably one of the very few people that that could do something like that with him um one of the people that um he would probably listen to I I I hope anyway that I'm still one of the few people he would listen to um and I I told him you know when the tapes go up drop the clutch it's as simple as that. Yeah, but what am I going to do? Where do I start? I said, mate, you ride here every week. Go up and start in the spot where you would start every time. And when they go up, drop the clutch. Yeah, but 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 what about this and what about that? It's irrelevant. The only thing you have to do is drop the clutch when the tapes go up. Absolutely. There's no magic. There's no magic. <laughs> Jason, we do thank you for taking this time obviously to spend an hour with us and go through your career. Just final question, how would you how would you look back as your career as a whole, your life in Speedway? Happy. Happy, um proud, um achieved what I wanted to achieve. Um you know uh you you at the time it's difficult to say you and you enjoy all of it. Of course, you don't enjoy all of it. There was, you know, there's there's things that happen uh, during during your career that that 
distress you, that upset you, um, you know, things that happen to to riders that you that you have relationships with. Um, there's uh, bad days. Um, you have to put it all into perspective and figure out what's a bad day and what's a good day. Difficult at the time, but when you step back from it a little bit and you get out of the grind of four or five meetings a week, um, I, th I think I did okay. You know, I think I, I enjoyed the majority of it. Um, you would, of course, change, change how some things some circumstances that you were put in you would change how they eventually turned out um but no i you know i i came out of speedway okay i i enjoyed doing what i did i wouldn't have done it for so long if i didn't and um of course you make tremendous bonds with different people along the way um and it opens up it opens up your life it opens up your mind and you know you you get to meet people from other sports and and um yeah it's speedways speedways a great life if, if you if you're able to to make it your career talk speedway talk speedway that graham was jason crump three times world champion as you say very insightful and i Absolutely loved hearing his stories and about the mentality of being a world champion. Yeah, I mean, I think we, we could have spoken to Jason for hours. We could almost have done a full series just with Jason, couldn't we? You know, talking at different stages, career, but as insightful as ever. And you always seen that, didn't we? During Crumpy's career, he was cerebral. You know, it, there was thought, everything was thought out. There was a process in place. He knew where he wanted to go and he knew how to get there. And I think that came across the interview and, and I loved it. Um, I think we did well. We, we managed to avoid the fanboy, and he was the three-time world champion in our golden generation. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I really enjoyed that, and always great to hear from Crumpy. And it, it, throughout the interview as well, Graham, we did hear that kind of mentality all the way through it. The I think early on in the interview when he was speaking and he was talking about the the building up, everything was built up to be world champion, and it's very interesting to hear that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I guess there's there's kind of the two sides to it, isn't there? You know, so some people become world champion based on pure talent alone. And, and of course, everyone who's world champions talented. That's a silly sounding statement. But, you know, some people get there just on that natural God-given ability. Um, others have that ability, but build and work up to it. And it's always interesting to hear both sides of the coin. And certainly um, from Jason's point of view there, you know, I, I don't think there was a stone unturned to get into the top of that tree. And, and, and once he was there, you know, three times world champion, they always say anyone can win at once. The real caliber is winning it again, and Jason managed that three times. Absolutely, and that consistency, as I mentioned during the interview, to spend nine years in the medal positions. But again, that interesting to hear that at 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 times he didn't see that as a success. When I think what I was kind of trying to get to in the interview, Graham, was is that when you see riders uh, now celebrating at the end of the Grand Prix series when they've came second, they've came third, and they've got a medal, and it means the world to them. To yep. them. It, it just didn't, it, like the mentality of Jason, as, as you heard, it wasn't about that. It was about reaching the mountaintop. Yeah, I wonder if that's like an English Premier League mentality, you know, where Arsenal want a trophy for coming fourth year on year and getting into the Champions League. <laughs> um, you know, I'm sure when he looks back now, 
that, that they mean something and, and there'll be a trophy cabinet there somewhere or, or they've been given to friends and family or whatever. But I guess at the time when you're so single-minded and so focused on one thing, second is just first loser. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and again, we thank Jason Crump for taking the time to speak to us through that and look out for the second episode in Series 2. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye. Talk Speedway. Talk Speedway.